Bibles, I'd like for you to turn to Acts chapter 20. And I don't, did I forget anything else? Okay. Um, I will say be careful out there. We put a mailbox up and we put 110 pounds of concrete in it and around it. And if you hit it, it's going to hurt. So y'all just, I just thought I'd throw that out there too. So uh, just be careful the mailboxes out there <laughs> beside the sidewalk. So that was, that was free. Uh, Acts chapter 20, I'd like to start uh, in verse, uh, I think it's verse 7. Um, yes, Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. The Bible says, and upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. And there sat in a window a young, certain young man named Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep, and as Paul was long preaching, I love that phrase. He sunk down with sleep and he fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. And Paul went down and fell on him and embracing him said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. And when he therefore was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till break of day, so he departed. And they brought the young man alive and were not a little comforted. And we went before to ship and sailed unto Asos, there intending to take in Paul, for so he had appointed, minding himself to go afoot. And so I want to spend uh, tonight uh, talking about Paul's midnight message uh, at, at Troas. And uh, <clears throat> just kind of as, as an introduction, there is a, a very s subtle matter uh, that Luke brings out right in the very beginning of that verse there in verse 7. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about it as the lesson unfolds. But he says, And upon the first day of the week, this is the first instance in the New Testament where you start realizing that the early church met on the first day of the week, which we would determine to be Sunday. And uh, it was kind of a pattern uh, that began to develop throughout uh, Christian history, early church history, and, and we'll, we'll look at it in a little bit more detail whenever we get to that. But I, I want to... Uh, point out something to you here tonight. You've heard me mention sometime, I'm certain, uh, the Puritans. The Puritans were uh, men and women in the 15th and 16th century, uh, meaning that they were in the 16 and 1700s. Most of the Puritans were people uh, that fought against the, the state church, the Church of England, and because the Church of England wanted to institutionalize religion and there were governmental parameters that they wanted to put on the church to try to control the church. And so this group of people, uh, in fact, 
Uh, the earliest Puritan is a man by the name of William Perkins. And uh, it's probably his most famous book that he wrote was a book called The Art of Prophesying. And uh, that word there, prophesying, we Pentecostals, we think about prophesying as in prophets. The title probably uh, could be better suited if you would say the art of preaching. And, and he talks about uh, the matter of preaching. The Puritans were very, very much keyed into the scriptures and understanding uh, what was taking place in the Bible. They, they literally... Uh, did everything they could to read their Bibles. If you've heard me mention uh, John Bunyan, John Bunyan fit into that category. Uh, you know, he was jailed because he preached. I do believe that when you start reading uh, some of the writings of the old Puritans that there are spiritual experiences that these people had that I believe that some of them actually were baptized uh, with the Holy Ghost as we teach and preach and that there was something phenomenal that the Lord did uh, in their, their lives. Uh, but they were, they, they've influenced even the Pentecostals, and that took place because the Puritans were very holiness-minded. And so out of that, just in the 1800s, you had John and Charles Wesley, and John and Charles Wesley were influenced by uh, the impact of the Puritans. Some of the Puritans, Thomas Manton, a lot of them were named Thomas, Thomas Goodwin, uh, Thomas Watson, uh, Stephen Charnock, um, men like that, uh, that that really put a lot of time. Uh, David Clarkson, uh, I guess you could say perhaps Tyndale, William Tyndale was a little bit before uh, that time. But, but all of these people had an influence on the Methodist and in the Methodist, whether you know or not, they used to call the Methodists the shouting Methodists, and the Methodists used to have something that they called holy clubs. And in the holy clubs, what they did was they talked about holiness and lifestyle. Then after the Methodists come along, after John and Charles Wesley, around about that same time, you've heard of a man by the name of Charles Finney. Charles Finney was a Presbyterian. However, if you read his autobiography, and you read some of his writings about revival and principles of consecration, principles of holiness, that I believe that just by his description that, that Finney even had the Holy Ghost. And there were revivals that took place during that particular period of time. Peter Cartwright uh, was a Methodist, the Cane Ridge, uh, Kentucky camp meeting. That was where, uh, whether you know it or not, uh, Mary Todd Lincoln, who was uh, Abraham Lincoln's mother, uh, she was involved in that. Some believe that her that that uh, Lincoln's parents. In fact, years ago, I heard Brother Ken Gurley preach a message where he brought in some history about Abraham Lincoln and about his parents and about how that they were involved in what we would understand as just old-fashioned holiness. Pentecostal meetings and then progressed forward uh, to what developed into the holiness movement which was in uh, the latter 1800s and then they start impacting because they were people that wanted to separate themselves from the world. Uh, and then you have people that come along and then here's where we got start kind of moving in 
uh, is you find Charles Parham, uh, you find William Seymour, Howard Goss, uh, people like that that where that the Spirit began to work in those people's lives because they desired a greater work of holiness in their life. Now, the reason I'm telling you about all this is because the Puritans kind of bumped that and moved, kind of got, kind of got the ball rolling. They were very, very much uh, in, uh, when you read some of their, their writings, they very much believed in worship on Sunday. In fact, they generally have a three-hour morning worship service and they would go home and they would eat and they would take a nap and then they would come back and it was nothing for them to have a three-hour evening worship service. Uh, and so they, they did those things. They also felt like a lot of those were farmers and carpenters and various, they worked, did a lot of work with their hands. And uh, one of the things was that they believed that the Bible was the great foundation for worship and for communion. Uh, and they would even felt like that, that general practice uh, of worship should involve prayer, singing of psalms, and spiritual songs, preaching, baptism, communion, and, and even church discipline if they needed that. That is a foreign thought uh, to our world today. Most of the time when you start thinking about practicing church discipline, whoever is to be disciplined, they get mad and they don't get their hearts right. They don't change their lifestyle. They just change churches. So I'll just throw that out there for you to think about, which can be a scary thing to do because we really shouldn't change churches. We really should just change our hearts and just get right with God instead of trying to decide, well, I'm gonna move to you know, this church across town or, or wherever to try to do whatever. They believed in and that, that because they believed that, the, that nature uh, taught the laws of worship, Romans 1 and 21, Romans chapter two deals uh, with that. Uh, they believe that God was worshiped with a, to be worshiped in a solemn uh, sense. And whenever they came into their assemblies, they did have men that would stand in the back that were ushers, and these men had long poles. And if someone uh, was sleeping during the message, they would walk up the aisle and they would take that long pole and they would jab whoever it was that was sleeping to wake them up. And that was some of the things that they practiced in the 16th and 17th uh, century. And, um, and so, so again, but, but again, they believed that the purpose of public worship uh, was to sanctify or to make holy the name of God. Now, when you start thinking about church growth, especially in our generation today, we want to do everything we can. We want to make sure the building is clean and nice. We want to make sure that the sound is not too loud. We want to make sure that all the singers are on key. We want to make sure that the temperature is just right. We want to present this good uh, whatever because people are consumer-oriented and yet when you look back historically at what churches were, the main goal of a church ought to be to glorify God. And if you glorify God and you sanctify his name, the Lord is gonna take care of that church growing. In fact, uh, I heard a man say it like this. He was talking, is at a preacher's seminar? And he said this, he said, a 
preacher shouldn't worry about trying to fill up the building. He said, if a preacher will fill the pulpit, God will fill the building up. And I do believe that. I believe there's something to that, that that if there is something reverent and that the word of God is taken seriously, then people, uh, the Lord will build his church. In fact, Jesus told his disciples that I'm gonna build my church and the gates of hell are not gonna prevail against it. They, they also believed uh, that they ought to, to own their profession. And, and what did they mean by that? They meant that by that, that my lifestyle, your lifestyle, that we ought to own our relationship with God, that there ought to be something about it, that, that I've got a prayer life, that I've got some interaction that I have uh, with the word of God. They also believe that whenever you come into public worship, uh, it was to build up the faith of the believer by edification from the spirit and the word. And I believe that there uh, has been times that all of us find ourselves coming in here and the spirit of God, it, it, it helps us. And I, Sunday night uh, after, I, after y'all left, I just sat down back in the back uh, before I left and just started thinking through the service last Sunday night. And I, I talked to my wife even about this uh, after I got home. The Lord did some wonderful things for Ja'Cory. And, and, and he was praying and the Lord was working. And then I look over and I see uh, Lane and Sarah and look across at various people across the congregation and the Lord was doing some wonderful things in people's lives. That's what we mean whenever we come into the house of God and we are involved in public worship. And then the fourth thing about public worship, and I would just say uh, this to, to maybe encourage you, uh, is, is that there should be an encouragement of love and fellowship uh, among the people that are that we call saints or believers. That there ought to be a time where that there's some encouragement that comes in whenever we walk into uh, the, the house of the Lord. And so the new covenant was established whenever the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord, what it did is it moved the church into a greater place uh, of worship. So you look, and Brother Patterson went through this here several weeks ago, but Hebrews chapter nine and verse one, it says, then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of a divine service and a worldly or perhaps earthly sanctuary. You remember it had that part where the, the tabernacle and then the temple was around. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter three, I'm gonna read this out of the ESV. It said, now if the, beginning in verse seven, now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? 
He's asking a question. He said, you, you know, Moses came down and because he was in the presence of the Lord, he had to put a veil over his face because it would have blinded the children of Israel. And now Paul is coming along and he's saying that when the ministry of the Spirit moves into a church, there is even more glory that begins to take place in that church. And I believe that ought to be something that we strive for here in our local assembly. Verse nine, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. That's talking about the old covenant, the old ways, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that what was being brought to an end, if it came with glory, then much more will what is permanent have glory. And so what is permanent? The work of the Spirit. And he's saying that that is going to have an active place that's gonna take place in your life. These are some wonderful scriptures right here. Ephesians chapter two, beginning verse 14. For he is our peace who hath both, who hath both made, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of the commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one God, in one body, by the cross, having slain the enmity thereof. And he came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were close or nigh. For through him we have access by one spirit unto the Father. And what Paul was talking about there, again, he was saying that the old covenant has been torn down and now you've entered into a place where that there's freedom and liberty and the work of the Holy Ghost that can be very much active in your life. I, I think that's just incredible when you start thinking about what the Lord has done in our lives because of the interaction with the Spirit. And so now knowing that the practice of those saints in ages past, uh, that there was a seriousness of worship and an understanding of the nature of the new covenant and now we are in the apostolic church today and I believe there ought to be reverence and honor and gravity and whatever respect and any other word that you want to put in there whenever we walk in the house of God that there is just a reverence that comes in whenever we begin uh, to worship the Lord. Public worship is more uh, than just going through a routine and wishing uh, that it would hurry up and be finished. Now, I have to be honest with you. There's been more times than one I've come in here, and this is when I was younger, not so much now. When I was younger, I was like, man, we need to hurry up. Because when church is over, my dad's going to give me a $5 bill, and I'm going to ride with Mike Patterson down to the McDonald's on the south side. Did y'all know that south side of McDonald's? They've torn it down and rebuilt it twice, I think, remodeled it. But they built there. It was one that was built back in probably the late 70s and on Sunday nights my dad would give me a $5 bill and he'd say you'd be home in 45 minutes. I, 45 minutes? 
mean, you can't even hardly get in there and get a hamburger and french fries and a Coke and be home in 45 minutes. But me and brother Mike Patterson, we jump in his Mustang and we run off down to McDonald's and we go out. And, and while I was in the tour in church, uh, I was like, man, I, I wish Brother Patterson would hurry up and quit preaching. I wish they'd hurry up and quit dragging this thing out. I need to go to McDonald's and, and, and eat. And, and now I'm not like that. It's now it's like, man, we're in the presence of the Lord and, and God is here and this is an interaction between me and the Lord and you and the Lord and, and I believe that, that God, he honors that whenever we come in and even Sunday night, you know, we started off, um, his mercy is more, singing that song, and then uh, Father Along, and then uh, Sunday morning, I think, what a wonderful name, singing that, and then being able to pray. And I, I, I used to think, too, whenever people would get long-winded with their praying, especially my granny, she'd get to praying, I'm like, I wish she'd hurry up and get finished. And yet here's what now I understand is that the more that you mature in the Lord, the more that that prayer comes to you in a way where there's liberty and freedom and there's authority that comes uh, with that prayer. Every part of our service uh, should mean something to us. And, and, and I would just say that that means that every one of us that are involved in anything in this service, whether it is on the platform or whether it is in, uh, say, pews, although they're not pews, but, but I just believe that all of us ought to be spiritually prepared whenever we walk in this place and begin to interact uh, with, with the Lord. And, and sometimes if we're honest with ourselves, uh, we have the spiritual ability to sense whether or not that somebody is spiritually prepared to be doing whatever they're doing. I mean, there's been times where that people have sung and I'm like, they, they need to hurry up and get done because there's no flow, there's no anointing. This is deader than a hammer. And then there's been other times people get up and sing. It's like, oh my Lord, it's like heaven has come down here. There's been other times where I've heard people pray. It's like, it's just vain repetition. And then there's been other times people get to pray. It's like, man, I feel what they're praying. I feel what they're preaching. And there's other times you think, I don't feel what they're preaching. And, and, and yet I think all of us are aware that there ought to be a sense that when we come into public worship that we ought to take it seriously. So let's get to the part there at Troas. Now I put a map there for you and I want you to, to look there and the reason that I put that there is because look right there in the center you see the Aegean Sea and you see perhaps to the extreme north uh, of the Aegean Sea up at the top there is Philippi but if you drift down sort of in a southeastern direction you come to that place where you see Troas. That is where Paul was at. Now Troas uh, was, was a place where that we read about one of the most remarkable miracles uh, of Paul's ministry takes place when Eutychus falls out of that third story window and he's dead. Now think about this. Paul, Luke, is writing the book of Acts. Luke is a physician. And so whenever Luke tells us um, in 
verse 9, it said, was taken up dead, that I would think that if Luke was a physician that he would know what he was talking about. And so Eutychus was dead. Eutychus was somewhere in the neighborhood of 7 to 14 years old, and we find that out by looking at some of the words where uh, that it speaks to that. In verse 12, it says, and they brought the young man alive. The word there that uh, is used for young man helps us to know that he was somewhere between 7 and 14 years old. Now, you think about that for a moment, that if you, are, you have a child that's 7 to 14 years old and that child falls out and they die, you can imagine what kind of grief that you would have uh, as a parent, and yet that happened there. Now, the, the city of Troas was, was strategically located uh, in a place where that sea travel could come in from the west off of uh, the Aegean Sea. And so because it was a port city, so to speak, there was a lot of traffic that come through there, and there was a lot of spirits that flowed through that place. Now, don't think I'm getting spooky, but years ago, the fair used to be across the road at the farm center. And whenever the farm, whenever they would bring that in here, there were so many times that the old church would get broken into um, Things would take place. It was almost like you could sense that there was something that was taking place, I guess, with the workers that come in and there was all sorts of things that would take place. However, there was one year uh, that they all came in and after they had done their deal, they all walked over here and uh, they met, I don't know if Brother Patterson remembers this, there was probably 15 of them and uh, they you know, professed to have the Holy Ghost and they wanted Brother Patterson to teach them a lesson. And so everybody else, the church left. And Brother Patterson stayed around and taught them a Sunday school lesson. And, uh, and then had a brief time. I stayed around because uh, my wife and my mother-in-law was worried about Brother Patterson. And so I stayed around. And, and yet there, was some, there are some good people that travels in that. But at the same time, when you have a high traffic area like that bringing all that stuff, don't think that they don't bring spirits with them. There are spirits that moves into that. Now, Troas was the largest city there, somewhere around 100,000 people, and it's set on about 1,000 acres is the city proper. However, there were walls that were around that city that somewhere in about a five-mile uh, circumference. And so whenever Paul got there, he was going back to a place that was familiar territory. If you have ever had to read Homer uh, in high school or in college, you remember he wrote uh, an epic poem called the Iliad. And in the Iliad, it talks about the battle uh, of Troy and the Trojan War. Well, the city of Troas was not too far away, less than 20 miles away from the city where the Trojan War took care of, what took place. So what the people in Troas did, that happened in the 13th century BC, so what they did was they capitalized on that and they reenacted the battle that took place at Troy and it was an economic boon for that town. And so Paul was involved in uh, being around that particular place. So, so now 
this verse in verse seven, and the, upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. Now this verse again is the closest verse in the New Testament that we find where it speaks to that matter about them meeting on uh, the first day there. Now, uh, I would say that whenever you start looking uh, at this, and I'm just gonna just kind of briefly mention this, and about 20 to 25 years ago, something developed among the apostolics, the Hebrew roots movement started getting in, and we had uh, even some churches in the Alabama district that quit having church on Sunday and started having it on Saturday. And they said, we've got to honor the Sabbath and they started, you know, the dietary laws. You can't eat pork. You can't eat, you know, all these dietary laws and started doing all this stuff uh, and saying we've got to uphold the Jewish law, Jewish tradition. And, and even now today, sad to say, there are still churches that are increasingly uh, adhering to some of those uh, what's called the Hebrew roots. Now, here's my challenge to those people that are involved in that, that you just gonna pick and choose what you're gonna do. Well, we're gonna adhere to, uh, we're gonna have church on Saturday because that's the real day that the real Sabbath was. We're gonna have these dietary laws. And my question is this, is where's the turtle doves and where's the range of the young turtle doves all the way to the bulls? Okay, y'all gonna kill some goats? You gonna sacrifice some goats? Let's go out back and have a barbecue because you can't just do part of them. You gotta fulfill every bit of the law. Now, what they do is they're using that and they want to get to the part where you can't say Jesus, you can only say Yahweh, okay? I don't know if y'all are aware of that. Some of that's over just a few miles from here over in the edge of Georgia. And what they do is they try to put pressure on apostolics. Y'all didn't know that's all going on? We even had the, dist the district board even had to talk about some of this. And even Brother Arnold had some of it to get into the church there in Gainesville and he had to deal with some of that there in Gainesville. So you, you again, you remember what Paul said in Ephesians 4, 14? He said, don't be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. The do doctrinal winds are constantly blowing and, and trying to come in and get into people's minds. And what we have to do is we've got to depend on the scriptures. And so people would come along and they would say, you know, you, you have to do this. And, and again, here is what I want to point out to you about this matter of us meeting on Sunday and having church on Sunday. In fact, if you want to go this far, I would just say to the, those that are in the, in the Hebrews Roots movement that the Bible speaks of every day being a spiritual Sabbath. That every single day that there's a part where that there ought to be some interaction that you can't just confine it to Saturday, but there needs to be a part every day where there's a spiritual Sabbath uh, that's taking place. But let's, let's look at some uh, of these reasons here that we cannot hold to the Hebrew roots uh, movement. The Saturday Sabbath was given as a, as a sign uh, to the nation of Israel for the Mosaic Covenant. You never find it being a sign that is given to the New Testament church in any of the epistles. And when you start reading Paul's epistles, there are a number of sins that Paul mentions there in 
the new, I mean, you start reading in Romans and you go all the way to Hebrews. If, if you believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, you find that bracket from Romans to Hebrews. And you think about all the sins that Paul wrote about, works of the flesh, things that we ought to stay away from. You never find in there a part where that Paul says that if you don't practice church on Saturday or, or the Sabbath, that you're involved in sin. I would think that if that was an important matter that Paul would have mentioned it in his epistles, but there's solace uh, that is involved in that. Furthermore, uh, you remember way back, a long time ago, whenever we went through Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, they never dealt with the Jerusalem Council. They never told the Gentile churches that they had to worship on the Sabbath. And I would also point out to you as well that the letter to the Galatians, that whenever you start reading the Galatian epistle, what is the Galatian epistle about? It's Paul saying that those that are Judaizers are those that are saying you have to adhere to the law. Paul was saying Christ come along and he was a, he, he was a shadow of that all those signs in the Old Testament that was to take place. He was the shadow and now you don't have to practice that because the substance of the shadow is here and that is in Jesus Christ. And so we're under the new covenant that we don't have to fulfill uh, that. So, so we start looking at that and realizing uh, that the purpose of that meeting there was very clear and it follows a pattern that you see set aside in the book of Acts. Acts chapter two, in fact, you can turn back there. This is a familiar scripture, I'm sure. But Acts chapter two and verse 42, here is what Luke writes. He's describing the practice of that early church. Acts chapter two, verse 42 the Bible says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine or teaching and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And then looking down to verse 46, the Bible says, and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. So that was the practice of that early church that was there uh, in Jerusalem and, they be, and then began to, to spread out uh, into another area. Now, here's, here's what else that we see. Look there in Acts chapter 20 and uh, look with me to verse seven. It says, and upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them. Now that word there, preach, the Greek word is a word that is delegato, which we get our English word dialogue. So it's a little bit different from what, from what we would perceive as a message that was being preached. What was Paul doing? He was teaching and then there was questions and back and forth and these people would, would question and they would ask questions and there would be a, you know, then Paul would respond to their questions and, and all of that sort of thing. That, that same word is used in Acts chapter 17 and verse two. Let's look back at that for a moment. Acts 17 and two, and Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned 
or dialogue with them out of the scripture. Turn over a page uh, to chapter 18 and look in verse 19. The Bible says, and when he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned or dialogued with the Jews. And then you find it also in Mark chapter nine, verse 34, it's used there in the context of disputed, and that's whenever the disciples are trying to figure out who was gonna be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And what do we have when we have that dialogue? And I remember a time, I was, this has been, this has been 25 years ago or more that Brother Griffin, it was in 1994, ever how long ago that was. Brother Griffin came and preached uh, here in, in Dothan and for some reason my brother-in-law was here. Uh, Brother Mike, they were home from Romania and uh, my brother was here so it must have been around a holiday time and Brother Griffin went in to Brother Patterson's old office in the old sanctuary and we got in there with Brother Griffin and Brother Griffin had a wide margin Bible that, I mean, it was loaded. It had things written on, on, on every page in that Bible and he sat at Brother Patterson's desk and we all sat on the floor or set chairs, whatever and Brother Griffin talked to us for, for probably three hours and uh, just went through the scriptures and back and forth and talk about scripture, ask questions, bounce from here and go there and do that. Some of the richest times of fellowship that I've ever had in my life have been times whenever that was taking place. I can remember times with friends of mine where that we would just sit down and just start talking about the Bible, that dialogue that's going on back and forth. And the next thing you know, that during that period of time that there's something that you're learning about the scriptures. That's why that I believe that home Bible studies are good for us whenever we start dialoguing over the word of uh, the, the Lord. And, and again, that's what was taking place. And so whenever Paul, uh, in that question and answer session that took place with those saints there at Troas, here's what else that we see that we see a willingness of Paul, that great apostle, to stand there and to talk to those people. The Bible says, look there in, in verse um, 11, it says, and talked a long while even till the break of day, and then after that he departed, and then he walked 20 miles from Troas to Asos. That's walking from here to Ozark. He spent all night long talking to them and then he leaves them and walks 20 miles to that place. But during all of this, verse eight, and there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. Now there's some, some translations, I believe in the ESV and maybe, have you got your ESV? Is that, is verse eight in parentheses? 28 is in parentheses. No, uh, I think maybe the New American Standard or maybe the NIV, one of those translations has verse eight in parentheses. And so it's like that Luke is just kind of putting that in there to say, okay, they were in the upstairs and there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. Now, years and years ago, 
And I have no idea how Brother Patterson and my dad even found time to do this. This was back when the church was much smaller and, and we were in the old house out in front. But occasionally, my dad, Brother Patterson, and Brother James Fears would go down to Columbia and they would go fishing. And Brother Patterson had a Coleman lantern and my dad had a Coleman lantern and we would get out there. Those things smelled awful. Now they light up, I mean they light up the area, but they smelled awful. Now think about a Coleman lantern running off of, I guess kerosene, whatever it was, and you put it in there and you got it in a room and it's burning that oil and that smoke and so you've got these lamps in this room that's burning this smoke. It's warm. There's a lot of bodies in there. And what Luke is basically saying here at this window said a certain young man named Eutychus, which his name means fortunate, being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. And so again, there was that part where that atmosphere didn't necessarily con was not necessarily conducive to learning and, and Eutychus went to sleep. I have a feeling he probably wasn't the only one that went to sleep. And I've mentioned this before, but it fits here, so I'll mention it again. In January of 2017, I went to Accra, uh, Ghana, and was there for, I think, ten nine days or ten days. And... Um, and taught at the Bible College there in uh, for Brother Cisco. We would we got there. We had service on Sunday, and and I'm just going to tell you this: it, it was it. You you think sometimes it gets loud here? I'm telling you, those places over there, it's like the louder it is, the better. And they got drums and guitars and keyboards, and I mean, they've got it cranked up wide open. And everybody's yelling. If they got the microphone, they're yelling. Nobody's just doing what we do. Everybody's just yelling. And I mean, it's so loud. It's just like, oh, my Lord, I'm ready for this to be done. And yet there's joyful worship over there that takes place, and that's just their culture. That's just what they do. They don't think anything about it. And then we were in service two places on Sunday and then Monday morning we get to the Bible College and the cert, it opens up at eight o'clock and Brother Cisco had uh, some, some of the uh, ministers from Ghana, uh, from the Ivory Coast. Um, I can't remember where the other places were, Benin, Togo, and some of those men, he asked them to speak. And so they would have a devotional in the morning and they would go from 8 o'clock to 8.45. And then at 9 o'clock, Brother Jerry McLean and myself were the alternating teachers and we would start teaching. And we would teach from 9 o'clock. We would teach until 12. And then we would take an hour for lunch. We would come back at 1 o'clock and we would teach until 5.30. We were in a narrow room there was probably about 60 people inside. The mornings were not too bad. There was no air condition. They had ceiling fans uh, that were in that room. And, uh, but by the time the afternoon got around, it, it was a good 90 to 95 degrees outside. And I mean, you would just be dripping uh, sweat. I mean, I, I was dripping. It was like I was out cutting, like we were cutting grass, Brother Josh. 
and I'm dripping down on my notes and trying to you know, do all this and I'm looking out here at these ministers that have come in from all over Africa and these guys are out there, they're writing, they're writing, it's like they're trying to write down everything that you're saying and I mean they are just pouring sweat and I ask myself the question, could the American church sit through that kind of atmosphere and it's not likely because if it gets one degree too cold or one degree too hot here you got people it's like it's too cold, it's too hot it's too loud, it's not loud enough, it's this, it's that it's the other there are people in third world countries that love God desperately with everything inside of them and I think sometimes at Western culture, we've got so many choices that it really has caused us to not appreciate what we have. We're, 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 we're pretty, I'm spoiled. I'll, I'll be first in line and just tell you that there's, there's a part about, uh, and I'm thankful for the blessings we've, we have. I'm thankful for that but I just want you to know that there are people that are in various places around the world that they would love to be where you're at. And they would love to have the advantages that you have. And so again, I, I think it's important that we, uh, so, so the room fills up, gets smoky, it gets warm, and next thing you know, um, Eutychus falls out the window. Now this area of scripture has been laughed at a lot and some have even used it to marginalize preaching and uh, have, have you know, those that preach long, teach long, et cetera, they, uh, you know, they say, oh, well, we shouldn't be doing that kind of stuff. Should we have services four or five hours long? No, I don't necessarily think that. But I do think that there's times where uh, that, we ought to realize that what takes place in public worship, that the Spirit of God, and you remember a few weeks ago, I remembered or I mentioned to you about one of the mysteries of the New Testament is the mystery of the church and that the Spirit is working in a way where that we're sitting here in this building and we're not even really aware of it, but there are things that are taking place in this building by virtue of us being born again spiritual men and women. And that by being here, there's things that's taking place in our spirit that often we don't recognize. And, and so it is. So the fact that Paul uh, had so much to say again reminds us of the importance of the gospel message for Christianity. And whenever Christians have lost their emphasis whenever they have begun to think of worship chiefly as entertainment or, or what can be accomplished in a worship service is essentially an emotional response that can be worked up by the singing of certain hymns or choruses or that worship should consist of a series of testimonies of how people were lost in sin with a great deal of emphasis on the sin and were then brought to Christ when they have substituted these other elements for careful Bible exposition in sermons, the church has always been weakened and sometimes it has even died. 
This is James Montgomery Boyce is writing in his Acts commentary. He said, this is because the power of God is not in our emotions or even in our experience, but it is in the word of God. And I want to say this again. We are no more filled with the spirit than we are filled with the word. Ephesians chapter five and verse 18. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be ye filled with the spirit. And then you pair that up with Colossians chapter three and verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So what's Paul saying? Paul is saying that we've gotta have the spirit inside of us, Ephesians five, but he's also saying in Colossians three, we've gotta have the word that's put into us. Now for all of you college folks and I'm the nursing folks and, and Sister Mullen, whenever they go do the chiropractor stuff and, and they're there in those classrooms and there's Sister Tabitha and my wife and Brother Justin and you know when, since Sister Sanders, you know when you get in that nursing classroom. I, I used to think in nursing school, I, I can tell I'm getting old because I'm starting to remember about some of those days. I thought that those nursing instructors, their number one goal was try to flunk me. And I really thought that. I thought they're trying, to, they're trying to weed me out. They want me to fail this test so I'll get out of their way and not mess up their state board whether I pass or fail. He's like, these, these people are a bunch of battle axes. They're trying to funk me. And yet, the classes in nursing school, they were from 8 o'clock to 11.30. Or if you had an afternoon class, it was 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock, three hours long. I remember in, a, in an anatomy and physiology class with Gerald Bryant. We was locked up in, in an anatomy lab with Gerald Bryant, who looked like Grizzly Adams and was in there with him for three hours and he was talking about bones and muscles and nerves and all that stuff and it was almost like he was gonna fall over. But you know what? You knew if I can get through this class and pass boards, it's gonna be to my, mon it's gonna be to my financial advantage. And I wanna tell you this, that sometimes when you think me and Brother Patterson just up here rattling, <laughs> just think about it like this. This is to your eternal advantage. It's not, it's not, you're not gonna make any more money, but I'm gonna tell you what, when you get to heaven, some of the things that's preached and taught is gonna be advantageous for you to hear. And so James Montgomery Boyce goes on. He says, this is because the power of God is not in our emotions or experiences, but in the word of God. His word is what God has chosen to bless, and that's why in properly conducted Christian services, we should emphasize it. It's not the eloquence of the preacher, thank God, because I certainly am not eloquent. However, it's in the authority of the word that is blessed and it's the word of God. And yet too often in our fast-paced society, we let time begin to govern uh, how, what should take place. And here I am, look at my watch. Uh, we let time govern what takes place and we're like, well, I gotta, hurt, I gotta be here and I gotta go there and, and, and yet... Uh, what happens is, is it ends up that our spiritual lives gets de-emphasized and it weakens the church. 
Now, as for speakers that spoke for a long time, when you start looking at ancient history, it was nothing for Cicero uh, to, to do a two-hour lecture. It was nothing for Pliny the Younger. Y'all ever heard of those folks? Pliny the Younger. It was nothing for him to lecture for seven hours. There's nothing for Socrates to go along and to do some of the lecturing that he did and people were like, they were just like, hey, we gotta hear what this guy has to say. And I believe that some of that even took place in the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when where were we here, oh, we're gonna preach for an hour. It's like, oh, an hour. Oh, my goodness. Brother Patterson's gonna preach for an hour. Brother Harrelson's gonna teach for an hour. Oh, my goodness. It's like, my goodness. Oh, my and we hear all the arguments about people saying, well, their attention span is not this and their attention span is not the other. But I'm gonna tell you something. Y'all have heard of a guy named Jordan Peterson? Some of you may or may not have heard. Jordan Peterson is a psycho clinical psychologist who teaches at the University of Toronto. He is making an incredible impact on the 20, 30-year-old generation. He will fill up stadiums. He will fill up arenas in North America and in Canada, and people flock in there to listen to him talk for two and three hours at a time while he's talking about political and social issues that are taking place in our day. Podcasts that people download that sometimes are in excess of three hours long. Listen to Feinbaum. Download Feinbaum's podcast. Five hours worth of, of, of Feinbaum. Feinbaum starts at two o'clock and goes till seven o'clock, or he used to. I hadn't listened to him in years. Like, oh yeah, we're going to find out about Alabama football. So, man, the. Brother Saban, those guys got it going on and we've got to listen to what, what Brother Paul is talking about. And you got men that listen to, to long radio talk shows on sports. And yet whenever I tell you I'm gonna preach for an hour, it's like, oh my God. What, what? <laughs> now let me put some pressure on me as a preacher. It's important that preachers are prepared. And T. David Gordon wrote a book in 2009, Why Johnny Can't Preach. And that's not Johnny Loveless. But y'all heard that book about why Johnny can't read? Well, T. David Gordon wrote a book, and everybody, every preacher ought to read it, Why Johnny Can't Preach. And he come to the conclusion that the reason that Johnny can't preach is because Johnny can't read and Johnny can't write. And I'm for preachers that read. I'm for preachers that study because if preachers will read and study and give themselves to the word of God, they'll have something to say. And periodically, Brother Stephen Williams will call me and he'll say, man, he said, somebody just called me. I nearly slipped out. I nearly told you who it was that was calling him. He said, he called me. He said, man, he ain't got anything to preach. And I'm like, dude, are you reading your Bible? I mean, if you read your Bible, you can preach from now until the cows come home. You can preach till Brother Adam falls out of his chair and we had to pick him up like Eutychus. If you read your Bible, preacher, if you work on your preaching, people will come listen to what you have to say. 
If you can connect the dots, it will not matter. People will come to hear what you have to say. I tell preachers this all the time. Good preaching is hard work. I wish I was a better preacher. And I've prayed and I've asked the Lord to forgive me for all of the, I may still be a bad preacher, but I know I was a bad preacher 20 years ago and I was, Brother Patterson, let me get up and experiment on y'all. I thought, oh my Lord, I can't believe that I was doing that kind of stuff. And yet as you grow and as you get into the word and then the congregation starts working that back and forth flow, there's something that takes place and I can't explain it to you, but I know that there's something that takes place when a preacher starts preaching the word and that congregation is receiving that word that that preacher is preaching. And so then in verse 10, and Paul went down and fell on him and embracing him said, trouble not yourselves for his life is in him. And when he therefore was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while even till break of day, so he departed and they brought the young man alive and were not a little comforted. And we went before the ship and sailed unto Asos there intending to take Paul for so had he appointed minding himself to go afoot. He wanted to go by himself. And I would say too that, that at that point, what was Paul trying to do? There was something about it that Paul was like, I need to get along with the Lord. And so this 20 mile journey that he could walk, that he wanted to get along with the Lord. And I, I just want to just tell you this tonight, that there's times where you can be so pressured and so challenged by life that if you can get into a secret place, Psalm 91, under the shadow of the Almighty, that there can be a clarity that can come to your soul. Why? Because all of a sudden, you're by yourself and there's a connection that begins to go on back and forth between you and the Lord. So we look at this in this, just in these few verses here, there are some indicators of Paul's commitment to worship. Meeting on the first day of the week, observing that day that the Lord arose, observing the Lord's Supper, which I have to say we probably have neglected somewhat here. There, there is nothing that is as powerful as a, as a communion service whenever you're taking communion. And and you're and we're and we're serving the elements, the the juice and the and the bread, and something takes place in, in that during that time of, of communion. And then honoring the Lord with other believers on the Lord's Day, and then being where the world expected him to be, which was on in church there on the Lord's Day. Do y'all expect me to be here every Sunday? You expect Brother Patterson to be here every Sunday, don't you? Why is that? Because we just expect them to be here. We know they're going to be here on Sunday. And there is that part about Brother Patterson and myself both that, that, that we know something good is going to take place on the Lord's Day. But at the same time, if there's an expectation that you're here, then, then something happens. Amen. I want us to stand pray you've gotten something out of this Bible study here.
uh, tonight. I hope it's been encouraging to you. And yet I hope that, that it's also been stimulating to the point that you may have thought, you know, what, what are some things that I can do that can help me to be able to stretch whatever gift I have to be able to serve the Lord with a greatness. Let, let's, let's talk to the Lord. Lord.